0: In 1967, after Jewish communities had lived under constant attacks for nearly two decades from a hailstorm of Syrian mortar shells and gunfire, the Israeli Defense Forces captured the Golan Heights during the Six-Day War. Credit for this strategic victory, in which Israel gained a high ground and the ability to protect its citizens living in the upper Galilee, is owed to the vital work of Eli Cohen, after undergoing extensive espionage training, in 1961, Eli Cohen said goodbye to his family and was sent by Israeli intelligence to begin a new life with a new assignment and a new identity, Kamel Amin Thabet. By 1962, Eli had gained complete trust of serious elite and high-level government officials, to include its prime minister. One of Eli's most significant contributions was his visits to the top secret Polon Heights with Syrian senior ranking officers. Taking note of every mortar position, tank trap, and trench, Eli suggested that the Syrians plant eucalyptus trees to deceive Israel into thinking the area was unfortified. Eli then passed this critical information to Israel, enabling them to easily detect and destroy Syrian fortifications during the Six-Day War. This military advantage resulted in the successful capture of the strategic Golan Heights in only two days. In 1964, after a shift in the Syrian government, Eli was suspected of covert activity and was soon discovered and captured by Syrian intelligence. The State of Israel, world leaders, the Pope, and many others intervened on Eli's behalf, but all were unsuccessful. Though tortured, Ellie never revealed Israel's secrets. After a show trial, he was hanged on May 18, 1965. Because of Ellie's invaluable contributions to the Jewish state's survival, he is known as Israel's greatest spy. Ellie Cohen sacrificed everything so that Israel could live.
1: Before we begin, I would like to invite the listeners of the show to become a supporter and you can support uh, with a small monthly donation and this will help sustain future episodes. If that's something that you're interested in doing, you can go to www.anchor.fm slash globalrecon and there's a support icon on there and you can set that up that way. If supporting is not something you want to do uh, financially, just share the episodes with your friends and family. Uh, Leave us a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. I have a very special guest on with me today. I have Toa Israel. Um, He is a veteran of the Israeli Special Forces and the Israeli uh, Security Services. He served for uh, 20 years, and he now owns a a tactical training company, and they have... um, an incredible staff of trainers, and uh, they bring a lot of experience to the table. Um, how's it going, brother?
2: Thank you for having me. It's, uh, really, I'm really delighted to, to be
1: here. Awesome. So uh, you served for a number of years in the Israeli security services. That's the Army, the secret services. Um, can we start um, before that, if you can just give us some background uh, before you joined the Army?
2: Yeah, so in Israel, uh, the army is a mandatory service. Uh, so I was uh, just another teenager, you know. Most very active, but uh, nothing to do with combat, really. Just basketball, uh, school, you know, the usual stuff. Uh, so I think it's quite boring. There's nothing uh, really to tell. Uh, before you join the army, we have selection processes. So I probably... Try to get to the best I could. Like uh, it's very common in Israel. uh, You try to get uh, the highest, uh, to the the biggest, uh, the best unit, okay, or the the most fitted for your skills and abilities. So, and and I end up uh, they recorded me basically after selection to Israeli Data Force, Um, and this is where the army started for me, basically.
1: So, when you when you joined the armed services, did you go straight into that special operations world?
2: Yes, uh, unlike uh, I, I never served in the US Data Force or the SAS, but uh, for what I the common knowledge I found out about, uh, unlike these units, the special airf- uh, services from Britain or US Data Force. Uh, to the Israeli Delta Force, you can basically get uh, straight from high school. Uh, they're taking uh, the generation of the high school graduate that fits the criteria and uh, does like a selection, like a hell week uh, of selection. And the people they find fit for the unit, uh, basically, you can you start from uh, basic training at the unit.
1: So that that unit is basically the the army's tier one component of the Israeli Defense Force.
2: Yes, uh, in a specific uh, in the specific missions that the Israeli Delta Force dealing with, they consider an Israel tier one. Yeah.
1: So the the name of the unit, um, mm-hmm. we can talk about that, right? Yeah, of course. Okay, so the name of the unit is. Sayaret Matkow. am I pronouncing that correctly
2: Yeah this is the name um Yeah exactly yeah
1: So the the word Sayaret um it's also similar to so I've had a veteran of the um Sheetet 13 on the show before Uh-huh so yeah. th- that's uh-huh. basically the navy's tier 1 component for right. the Israelis right. um, So yeah. th- I I don't speak Hebrew obviously but those two <laughs> words they seem a little similar um, right. The, is fine. that centered around some kind of translation of special? Is that what that means?
2: No, it's basically sayeret the translation, is a recon. Okay. Sayeret is basically people doing patrol and navigation and show show the bigger unit the way to go, right? Doing the recon for the bigger unit. And Sayerete, it's basically... A fleet, uh, equivalent to fleet, so it's basically a unit uh, at the sea. Uh, Although they are navy seals or commando, sea commando, whatever the the translation is, they're still a unit in the navy. So they they're basically following that word shayetet, meaning fleet, and thirteen. Thirteen is the the number that you know goes uh, together with the unit.
1: Right. Okay. So these units, a lot of the world's tier one... So in different countries throughout the world and throughout the last, um, I would say, 70 years or 80 years, there have been different special operations units from different countries. So Mm -hmm. it isn't like the British invented this, but um, with the, the current... The um, layout of these units, the types of training, um, the, the counterterrorism aspect is certainly a British trademark. Um, the SAS, a lot of these Tier 1 units around the world are based on the SAS's setup. Um, that includes the U.S. Delta Force. Um, uh, the SAS operate alongside the SBS, which is their naval component of Tier 1 uh, counterterrorism. uh, Navy SEALs are based, SEAL Team 6 is based on that layout as well. Uh, Is this the same for the tier one components of the Israeli uh, Defense Forces?
2: Yes, uh, basically, yes. So uh, the inspiration is uh, what uh, uh, David Sterling did in World War II. He basically been able to get uh, uh, the commando people. that you know they used to have a big commandos units and a basically former, a smaller, more uh, tough to the point direct action unit that was operating in northern uh, Africa, and they were they did so well, <laughs> so basically it inspired everybody to have uh, some sort of special the, special direct action. Unit to sabotage, do behind enemy lines work, uh, gather information, and later on it's become modern warfare as we know it today. Yeah, it's also said Matkal and Israeli Navy seeds are all inspired by, by SAS with, you know, the Middle East uh, flavor. There are some also similarities but also uh, the unit, Seret Matkal, started from a basically Arabic undercover unit. Right. So basically, it try try to be at the beginning, dressed as Arab, disguised as Arabs, be able to maybe not stand out when they're gathering information in Arab countries that all around us, you know, basically. So, yeah, this is the origin. This is how it started.
1: Yeah. So basically the it is Israel as a country um for a long time and and as a, out of a necessity to survive has had to conduct these sort of um like very proactive operations around intelligence gathering and sabotage um and this is necessary to survive in a region where Frankly, a lot of people don't want Israel to exist. Um, Obviously, you can't stop all the threats, and there's been a lot of Israeli blood shed to maintain security um, for the country. Um, What about the mindset of the intelligence services of the military uh, and the political leaders that allow Israel to take audacious actions or against those who would do it harm. Uh, an issue that the United States has at times is we are very reactive and slowed by t- politics with regards to defense and counterterrorism. Israel doesn't seem to have that problem. Can you explain <laughs> maybe what some of the differences are?
2: Uh, I think we also have our own uh, politicians and uh, interests that want to deter us from doing uh, proactive uh, operations. Uh, we're also suffering from the same diseases that is, you mentioned. Uh, I think that what you mentioned in the beginning is what is really true. Uh, a necessity. Um, yeah, Israel is basically... I'm 45 years old. Uh, Israel have a constant war uh, for more than 70 years. Non-stop, uh, almost every day. And it's not like... Um, Another problem for Israel, it's actually a number one problem of Israel is uh, terrorism. Nowadays, terrorism used to be in the past, of course, also conventional wars with our neighbors. So it's a different conflict. It's more extreme. Uh, if you compare it to America, for example, you have your times that nothing really happening as a direct conflict to the national security of America. You are suffering also from a uh, what a superpower suffering, you know? Uh, uh, elbow the the, the next uh, biggest uh, strongest uh, superpower, <laughs> uh, but but we are a small countries, so for us the conflict is immediate, threat to the existence. Okay, it's a survival, not just interest. So this this is basically why why maybe. We have this conversation. We are fairly active uh, taking the offense, not just the defense. Uh, it would be better if I show you on a map, but this is an uh, audio of podcast. Israel is narrow. It's a narrow country. Nero, very easy to get from one side to the other. Right. Uh, it's so small that uh, basically an airplane flying from one side of Israel let's say from the Jordan uh, border on the east to the Middle East, uh, Middle uh, Mediterranean Sea, okay, they need uh, close to two minutes to fly from side to side of Israel.
1: Right.
2: Now, if it's basically think about, let's say we live in America, right? Think about that uh, Canada wants to attack uh, uh, Chicago, let's say if you have a state of war with Canada, okay, uh, the, the distance is zero, it's, a, it's very, very small. So when we take the offense, or we have to take the offense, because we don't have a place to retreat, really. Right. We don't have the ability to mobile forces as much. Um, and it's become a habit, it's simply something that we do. We all the time take on the offense. Um, Hey, look, I'm an officer in the army. I, I am aware that we have defense uh, tactics also. <laughs> uh, so so this is, I think, um, you know, a motto, or what, uh, get us, uh, what stands out when you come and see Israeli tactics or approach to counterterrorism, terrorism. very aggressive approach, usually.
1: Yeah, like, for example, reading about the Six-Day War, uh, we're, we're basically you're being attacked from almost every single angle, from the north, right. from the east, yeah. from the south, uh, with the sea to the west, with the ocean yeah. to the west. Yeah. And um, I think at the time, I'm not sure which military was stronger, the Iraqis or the Egyptians, I'm, I don't remember, but I know the Egyptians did have an air force and um, – and, and they were willing to deploy against uh, Israel. Mm-hmm. And then just learning about how the Israeli secret services were able to sabotage the the aircraft on the ground and, and the pilots, I mean, it was just mind-blowing. Um, and then also reading about the way that the secret services uh, tracked down um, Nazi war criminals uh, all over the world. Uh, and Argentina was one spe- in specific that I had yeah. learned about. Um, mm-hmm. And it's really fascinating to see the the method, the methodology that was used. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously, this is a long time ago, but um, it's just fascinating to see that. And then to just sort that kind of gives you an understanding of how the Israelis operate and um and just potentially how much stronger Israel has, is now than they were in those days?
2: Uh, yeah, look, in particular, you brought uh, basically the, one of the biggest victories in uh, world history. I'm talking about uh, the modern times. I'm not talking about uh, ancient times. In the six-day uh, war, we basically been able to eliminate and de- basically destroy almost completely uh, all the air forces of all the neighbors in three hours. Right. Uh, now, when I'm talking about all, I'm talking about uh, we we didn't visit all the airfields. We visited only the airfields that uh, effectively can operate against Israel, meaning we did not hit 100% of the airports and 100% of the airplanes of the of the enemy. We made sure that not... No plane can land and lift lift off from the airfield we destroyed and effectively uh, come to Israel and and the airplanes that were there while we did attack. So think about a big war that we have an air force and the other side doesn't have an air force at all, nothing, in the first uh, three hours of the war. Uh, this is uh, almost immediately collapses the, the morale of the forces, uh, of, and, and this is the key. This was the key for that victory. Uh, we can we can try to praise, uh, of course, the ground forces as well, but they basically uh, as a whole. Okay, when I'm looking at the whole conflict, did not suffer almost uh, any significant uh, resistance uh, to the offense that we took. Uh, there are some pockets, you know, here and there, that were was resistant, but overall, uh, a sweep, basically, a, a relatively impressive sweep. Uh, yeah, so I think I think uh, also uh, people saying, uh, you know, sometimes people superstitious about things and or uh, blaming, uh, uh, you know. Uh, uh, spiritually okay or religiously uh, considering that also as a miracle but uh and it could be i'm not the one here to argue <laughs> uh with religion uh, i don't think i'm a i'm a you know who who am i right small small me but uh i know some of the planning and the preparation preparation for this uh, for this uh uh Assault on the airfields. It was uh, you know, it's not like nowadays that we have GPS and everything's so easy, right? right. They were doing navigation <laughs> in zero, uh, you know, they were really close to the surface of the of earth, a few meters above the desert. They were using compasses and, and, and a stopwatch and map and learned everything by heart also. And did it, uh, Some of the raids were on the last drop of the fuel. Some of them also ejected overseas because they couldn't make it back. There were all kinds of, uh, you know, uh, che- checking the borders of the envelope, you know, of uh, what an airplane, combat airplane uh, is. <laughs> uh, capability it's really impressive, you know. They were uh, giants, you know. Uh, and did very well. It's really, really impressive as a, as a unit, you know, as, a, as an Air Force. Not just a a hero here and there, very talented, you know, gifted guy. It was across the board, very impressive assault. Uh, and it's, uh, I think you can take something when you come to analyze why the Israelis sometimes uh, excel. It's because of that hard work, preparation, give uh, priority to quality people to be in the in this different units especially the T1 uh, this is a, this is the israeli mindset uh, out of necessity
1: right yeah yeah it's it's um it's fascinating looking at the history uh if you go back um th- there's a a gentleman he's a canadian i think he was born in canada but he had jewish roots and he lives in jerusalem now Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a journalist. His name is Matty Friedman, and he wrote a book called um, "Spies of No Country," and it was detailing um, the sort of the unit that uh, preceded the Mossad, and and basically this unit was made up of uh, uh, Jewish Arabs or Arab Jews, mm-hmm. and they were basically conducting undercover operations in Syria and, and uh, I guess, all the countries that bordered Israel. And they passed themselves off as Muslims, and a lot of them were killed and, and tortured, stuff like that. But the surviving members of this unit later on became some of the first members of the Mossad, uh, you know, a few years after. Mm-hmm. Um, so then if if you Google greatest Israeli spy the name at the top of the list is Ellie Cohen right um there's a show right now on Netflix um played by Shasha Baron Cohen Mm -hmm. and uh basically just sort of going through his life and I I think it's like hour-long episodes I think I watched like two episodes or three episodes I can't remember I didn't watch the whole thing Uh um but that story just sort of illustrates um how dangerous some of this undercover work is like my audience is comprised mainly of sort of patriotic Americans. We do have an audience in the UK. We have an audience in Australia and Canada and and then some other countries around the world, but it's mainly people who support the military and and that kind of thing. Um, And then there's obviously a demographic of kids who are inspired by the guests who come on and those kind of stories, and they want to serve, and they want to you know join the marine Corps, or they want to become mm-hmm. navy seals and and that kind of thing yeah. and um a lot of it is um it has this appeal, like this romantic adventurism type of appeal, mm-hmm. but the story of a guy like ellie Cohen yeah um it's for Israelis, I would imagine it it's it's patriotic, but it's also tragic. And it just shows how dangerous this type of thing is in reality, um, because ultimately he was captured and, exec- and tortured and executed. Yeah. And um, the show on Netflix when it starts, I, I believe he was re- writing his will. Uh, he was ca- he was a, so basically he was a he worked undercover for the uh, Israeli government, mm-hmm. and he had worked his way up into favor with um government officials in Syria. Yeah. And he helped you know learn about troop positions and he did a, a number of things that benefited Israel and and helped keep them going. So but ultimately he was caught as a spy and brutally tortured when when the show starts he's writing out his will or I think it was a letter maybe to his wife.
2: Mhm.
1: And one of the things that you notice is all of his fingernails have been pulled off. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that is extremely painful. Um, the Syrian intelligence services were, were known to be very brutal. Um, and it, and it's just sort of a reality of this is these kind of sacrifices is what has kept Israel going today.
2: Yeah, uh, I watched, uh, watched it all and uh, I think Sasha Baron Cohen did a great job. Yeah. Uh, and the rest of the cast and, of course, uh, the production. I know I know the story also from uh, as a teenager. It inspired also me and my generation. Um, yeah, again, a necessity. <laughs> Back then, they didn't have any type of uh, intelligence we have today. They need to gather the information. Uh, literally, newspapers, you know listen to the radio, have people, connection, uh, human, we call it the operational uh, human factor, okay, agents that we operate, like Eli Cohen, or even non-Jewish people that we recruit in order to give us uh, information. So it was more toward human and collecting data from open resources. And the work of Eli Cohen was critical for many, many years later, after he basically captured, it still uh, gave us an advantage. By the way, in the Six-Day War also, uh, right. we will be able to locate and destroy fairly easily uh, some, of the, some of the strongholds that they held uh, uh, by the Syrian uh, army due to the fact that uh, Eli Cohen uh, convinced the regime to plant eucalyptus uh, trees. Mm, Right, Uh, as a shade, (laughs) so the Syrian will be nothing under the direct sun. Uh, You know stuff that uh, you know nowadays. Again, with all the technology, it looks like ah, come on, what? It's uh, it's helped at that time when uh, they have uh, not a lot to to gain the advantage. Yeah.
1: So you've um you've lived in Israel for most of your life. I'm assuming.
2: Yes. Um, Yes.
1: So, obviously, I think, I forget the exact numbers, but from, like, comparing, like, the 1990s in Israel to, like, the 2000s and now, Mm -hmm. I think it's gotten much safer, if I'm correct, um, in terms of security and and attacks that were taking place, like bombings on buses and stabbings and things like that. I think they're down a lot now.
2: Yeah, the, the Middle East is a very bad neighborhood. Uh, used to be uh, different threats changed, you know, the, the threat changed faces. It used to be more uh, at the beginning survival, just a small country against the other neighbors stronger. Uh, but the, the the conflict was uh, taking shape as a conventional war. Right. Army against armies. Uh, when the armies of our neighbors uh, or the, when the Leadership of uh, our enemies saw that conventional warfare doesn't, uh, doesn't uh, provide the right results, okay? They were basically constantly losing. Okay, I put, I, they, they don't, don't get me wrong. I don't want to underestimate the enemy, okay?
1: Right.
2: Uh, but uh, the bottom line is uh, we survived. We survived in a upper end. They basically changed a face to more guerrilla or attack uh, using proxies such as uh, Hezbollah today, but also I'm talking about the even in the late 50s, they already started with Fedayun, and basically paying mercenaries or proxies to do attacks. Uh, uh, It was not in a capacity that would devastate Israel at the time, but it could turn to a success. You know what uh, the problem with success that he... Gets the person a confidence to do more, so you need to stop it while it's still small threat, and not let it, uh, uh, you know, become a momentum. Right. Uh, and later on, it's become eventually. Uh, but it also, even this guerrilla warfare was taking. Uh, it was a. It was a still an army tactic. Okay, they have uniform. They did ambush on vehicles. Uh, when we took care of that, they came with another form. Now they dress as civilians, uh, doing raids or kidnapping airplanes. When we took over that threat, they become uh, suicide bombers. You know, right. eventually uh, the enemy all the time adapts. Also, uh, we are adapting to the new, the old, uh, the old threat until the, <laughs> the enemy is more creative and uh, de- develops something that we didn't think about. So, so nowadays the conflict is very, very clear that it's asymmetric, meaning it's not a conventional warfare as we know it. Uh, It's terrorist cells trying to do sabotage from the inside or outside of Israel, uh, abroad also, and we we have the threat of Iran. Iran is basically have a nuclear uh, capability if they want in a short period of time. Uh, right and, and and this is very big uh, threat so this is uh, number one on the list
1: yeah right and i i think a lot of people probably don't realize this but uh, recently this name has been learned by americans but obviously to israelis uh, people in the security services and people who cover the middle east uh in the media or people in the security services in America have known this man's name. And that was Qasem Soleimani. Mm -hmm. And he was uh, the leader of the Republican guard uh, of the cuts force of the Republican guard. So they're basically their special operations. Mm -hmm. And um, a lot of people realized that they basically fund and have set up Hezbollah in Lebanon and, they're responsible for a lot of attacks on israel and and things like that and and that's a, a big issue for israel if the iranians do get that nuclear capability and and it's why that there were there were several attacks on iranian scientists and on their um you know on their computers and and things like that to sort of slow down that process uh, to sort of deter them from getting that weapon um so two things i wanted to mention Uh, I think a popular misconception is during the 60s and uh, the Six-Day War. At that time, Israel didn't have full support of the Americans. And I think that's one thing that people don't really understand. So they were sort of on their own in that fight. Um, And and I I think for myself, when I learned about it, I was surprised to read that. Yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah, but it's true. We basically had... uh good close relationship with france Uh, they supplied most of our weapons Uh, and then the goal because of the oil and opec and the oil uh, cartel if you want he decided to choose uh, the strong side which are the rest of the arabic world (laughs) that provide the oil and cut us uh, off from supplies Um, in Six Day War or around these years, we have uh, we have nobody to back us up, right. no superpower. Uh, and then America became more dominant eventually until nowadays uh, considered to be the biggest friend of Israel ever. Uh, a legacy that uh, Donald Trump uh, continues uh, to do, uh, and. And definitely, you know, as a small country, we don't have a chance if we don't have a support of a superpower. Right. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's really amazing. <laughs> I'm very happy. Right. That yeah, that we and now I'm trying to be American, so i definitely would support Israel now as American, so right.
1: yeah. um Okay, so I was in Israel over the summer. Um mm. so I would take like I guess this is what a lot of people do when they go to Israel, at least Americans. Yeah. You take like day trips to some of the historical sites because there's like an incredible amount of history there. Yeah, um, You know, during the day and then at night, you sort of hang out in Tel Aviv. You maybe go yeah. to a bar or you go eat or whatever. Yeah. Um, so I did this, me and my wife, we did this for a few days. Um, and Tel Aviv has like a lot of energy and it's like a lively night scene. Yeah. Um, I went to a few restaurants over several nights in the old Jaffa section uh-huh. Um, and Jaffa is predominantly a Muslim section of right. Tel Aviv um, uh-huh. and if you just sort of listen to the news you wouldn't think that this is even possible right you know the Israelis are you know all, all these things that are said about the Israelis and the western media um, but there, there seemed to just be you know the Muslims were just out just like regular people hanging out by the beach people hanging out uh, smoking hookah and you know at restaurants and Everybody kind of seemed relatively happy. Um, yeah. Which is almost surprised me a little bit because everything that I heard of is just something I'd read in the media, right? Um, but I did feel uh, that there was a little bit of a difference when I stayed in Jerusalem. Uh, I felt like there was more tension in the air. Yeah. Is this due to President Trump rec- recognizing Jerusalem as the capital?
2: Uh, again, who am I to say? It's really my, my own opinion. Right. And it's nothing to do with politics, really. Um, I, think, I think, first of all, and uh, again, I'm not an expert to Arabic-Israeli relationship, okay, in any way. Right. So don't consider me as an expert for this field, okay? Um, I think there is tension in all of Israel. When it comes to Arabic-Jewish uh, living together, there is a uh, embedded conflict. That uh, the times they are fairly good and the economy is good. Uh, there is a both of the sides have an interest to to calm things up, you know, to to create a uh, to create normality, okay, create a normal uh, atmosphere. Uh, but there is there is a bubbling. <laughs> You know, it's under the surface. There is there is tension uh, from both sides. I don't want to blame the other. Uh, uh, and you see that in Jaffa. In Jaffa, I'm also I also visited there uh, last summer uh, as a guest, right, in my own country. And I felt the tension uh, a bit under the surface. So it's only my opinion. In Jerusalem, it's different. In Jerusalem. Uh, there is, there is first of all, there is a border now in jo- inside Jerusalem. There is a separation between the east and west uh, due to the terrorism attacks. Uh, one of the results of uh, uh, riots uh, in the 2000s, we come to a conclusion: we have to build up a wall and. And it's created, uh, of course, uh, also problems to to people that used to live uh, and work in Israel, not to be able to do it so easily. So, okay, so let's say an uh, understating, uh, understatement, the idea, of course, if I was, let's say, a Palestinian or East East uh, Jerusalem uh, uh, Arabic. Muslim guy, I probably will use uh, not so so kind words, okay, Uh, but let's say I'm trying to leave the other side, they basically, uh, we boycott, uh, uh, we we broke their normality, the normal normal ability to move around. Uh, Now, we're saying on our side that it's because of terrorism, which is true. It's not like I'm using it. And... After the after the establishment of the wall, uh, there was almost uh, uh, it decreased dramatically the amount of the attacks. Right, right, dramatically. I mean, uh, from uh, thousands to a few hundreds, which I don't say. I'm not trying to underestimate hundreds of uh, attempts, okay, to do terrorism in Israel. It's become from thousands to a, a few hundreds. A year that uh, Israeli Shin Bet, basically the unit I'm coming from, or the, the agency, uh, dealing with it. Okay, they basically part of the solution of why it's so, so small, fairly small numbers of attacks or attempts to do attacks. Uh, I think this is where the tension is coming from. Uh, I'm not so sure it's a religion-oriented uh, reason. It's more national. You took our ability to use uh, the land, and now you, okay? So, so, uh, but uh, again, it's out of necessity, uh, and 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 I'm not. I'm trying not to be political about it, okay? Or or use religion terms, or uh, try to be, you know, on the surface like observer.
1: Right. Um, one of the nights that I was in Jerusalem, um, so I stayed in the west first and then i spent uh two nights in the old city itself um which was quite an experience right yeah Mm -hmm. so uh, on one of those nights that i was staying in the old city uh, me and my wife we wanted to go to the mount of olives for sunset that's like a popular thing that people do it's beautiful um you know i'm also a photographer so i was able to get some nice pictures and stuff like that so yeah um so we walked out of the Old City, and I, if I remember correctly, I think you you have to leave through the Lion's Gate. Um, mm-hmm. It's like a seven-minute walk or something to you get to the bottom of the hill, and then you have to walk up a couple of minutes. Yeah. So when you get towards the top, you make a right to go to the sort of the viewing area. Um, yeah. But I was following the GPS on my phone, and for some reason, it told me to make a left.
2: Okay. So... <laughs>
1: So we yeah. make the left and then it's like you make make a left and then sort of go back right and then you're whatever. But as we're walking, I'm like, this looks like a residential neighborhood. This doesn't and it's sort of a hill going down now. And yeah. and I realize like we're in a Palestinian neighborhood.
2: That's it, yeah.
1: Um So there were some young boys outside, like, you know, on their bicycles, you know, just sort of playing in the street. And um yeah. And they were kind of looking at me, like, with curiosity. You know, they they probably don't see many, like, um, like big Americans with tattoos and um, yeah. uh, camera equipment and stuff like that. And um, so, I, you know, I quickly realized, like, all right, we're not in the right spot. We probably have to go back. So one of the boys was kind of near me, so I asked him, I was like, where's the Mount of Olives? And he's just sort of, like, giggles. And he's like, oh, we're on the Mount of Olives. If you're talking about, like, the viewing area, you have to go that way. And he points... Yeah. So then we went and, and they kind of like followed us from like a block away, you know, like just sort of laughing on their bikes. And um, a few days later, I was back in Tel Aviv, like before I took my flight back out. And I had breakfast with a friend of mine who served in a recon unit in the Israeli Defense Forces. Mm-hmm. And um, I told him about the story. And he said to me, he said, it's a good thing you don't look Israeli. He said that could have turned into an incident. Um, And then he he had told me about certain incidents that had taken place where basically uh, maybe an Israeli uh, army, a few personnel in the army made a right turn into the wrong neighborhood or walked into the wrong area. And it sort of turned into a violent incident.
2: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, you're, you're lucky. It could be very brutal. But, uh, again, they, they did not capture you as the enemy, so... Right. You were undercover. Yeah. Good good cover. Yeah. But, uh, photographer, American tattoos, nice, nice one. You can be there for a while.
1: <laughs> um, so, uh, you served in um, special operations units. So, you were in that tier one unit... Um, And then you went to a different unit, or was that a different section in the unit? Can you talk about that?
2: Yeah, so basically I was in Delta Force Seret Matkal for one year. And after that, I was transferred. I I simply was not good enough. So I went to a unit that nowadays they call Seret Golani. Seret Golani is uh, Seret, we discussed what is the meaning, right? A recon unit, and Golani is a brigade. So basically a unit that is the recon for brigade. Brigade is basically a unit big as three battalions or regiment. So something like the recon of the 75th, uh, let's say, regiment
1: Rangers. Here in
2: America. Yeah. Rangers. Uh, recon unit for that regiment. Uh, this is how I finish basically my soldier period in the army. And I became an officer. I went to officer course. That in Israel, like uh, joining Delta Force, right, straight from uh, high school, to become an officer, you can uh, come straight from being a soldier. Uh, We don't, unlike in America, we don't educate the officers in a different school with a BA, bachelor degree, and then officer. In the Israeli army, you need to be a very good soldier to become an officer. In a combat unit, so you first are a good soldier and then an officer and not vice versa not, right. not not in a different path path if you want so and I was an officer in the army in a recon unit that uh, also I served as a reserve for fifteen years so I was there basically this the the other unit named Yahmam, it's a uh, it's a unit that gives recon to a division. In the division level, okay. So basically, I graduate from, I downgraded from number one unit of Israel, okay, to a brigade recon, and later as an officer for a division recon. So this this is my path in the army, and, and uh, it was amazing. <laughs> the service was uh, terrific. Uh, I got to do very interesting stuff. Um, yeah, that's it, more or less. Unless you have other questions, of course, about it. So,
1: wh- how long were you in the army and, and like in the reserves and stuff like that, like as, as a soldier?
2: Total. So, mand- mandatory service for Israeli soldier is three years. Mandatory. This is what everybody do. Uh, if you become an officer, you need to sign a, another year. Uh, to basically, to be able to be, be an officer, you need to serve another year. And after that, the Army takes you uh, once a month, uh, once a year for a month or something, uh, to function as the as an officer, in my case, an officer for a recon unit team uh, for the next 15 years as reserve. So you mandatorily, uh, mandatorily need to serve three years, and after that, you need to serve about 15 years uh, more, uh, 50, 20 years depends on the duty, on the position, as reserve. It's uh, mandatory also.
1: Yeah. Okay. And then afterwards, you had um, served in the Israeli Secret Service, essentially, right?
2: Right. So basically, during the, the process of uh, getting a new job, uh, I was working in the high-tech industry in software, something totally different than what we're discussing here. And I basically joined the, the Israeli Shin Bet. Shin Bet is a, an agency equivalent to the FBI and U.S. Secret Service together. Okay, they It's a counter-terror organization, most of all, and they have also a protection duty that is similar to the U.S. Secret Service, protecting the some of the prime assets of uh, Israeli government, such as the Prime Minister, me, the President of Israel, and other, and other uh, institutes. Uh, and I was uh, basically in Shin Bet, uh, assigned here to Washington, uh, as a deputy a chief security officer in title, uh, chief security officer in profession, and we was basically responsible for missions of protecting the diplomatic uh, mission here and also the executives, such as the ambassador uh, here in Washington. So my my job here in America is protection, not not uh, not the intelligence sides of uh, of uh, the organization. Yeah. And
1: how long did you work in that capacity?
2: So uh, a few years, uh, I'm not considered a long career. It was an assignment just to get to America and find out uh, how it is over here, maybe to stay. So this is my initial personal private plan. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I achieved it, so I stayed. Uh, and the last day, uh, for 2012, uh, basically I have Israeli tactical school. Uh, a school that uh, we're trying to teach some of the aspects of the, the abilities of the Israeli state as a whole. Nothing to do with only me okay, and my skills. Right. Yeah.
1: So you, you have this, this company and this uh, Israeli tactical uh, school and you guys are offering all types of training to different levels, uh, beginner, intermediate, advanced. Um, and you have an, an interesting staff of instructors. Can you just talk like very like, briefly about what some of the backgrounds of the instructors are?
2: Yeah. So first of all, it's, uh, I could call it the Tomer Israeli School, right? Uh, I chose the name Israeli Tactical. So the idea is uh, to take Tier 1 people, okay, uh, expert in their own fields, and basically provide courses based on their experience. So this is what initiates the idea of Israel Tech School. And, uh, you know, we exist for seven years already, or eight almost. Um, oh, we can say eight years. We exist for eight years now, so it, we're probably doing something good, uh, providing high-quality service. Uh, instructors, besides me and my qualification as mentioned uh, before, we have instructor that was, and I cannot disclose a lot about him, but let's put, uh, he was in operational unit, uh, undercover surveillance so unit, that doing uh, special operations behind enemy line undercover. Uh, but not espionage uh, for like Ellie coin okay? Not just become uh, a person on a different identity and operate. Uh, it's more like a operational field, field operation, field uh, surveillance. So his name is Mr. S, I call it on the website. Um, so he's bring, he brings to the table his experience, a very very unique the world of manipulation the world the world of uh, undercover work uh, with orientation to deception manipulation uh, basically the non army classic uh, commando okay uh, skills more like undercover skills. Uh, We've got uh, a guy from the Green Beret. His name is Ian. He was, uh, he's not Israeli, but uh, I'm working with him for the last uh, four years. Uh, amazing, amazing guy that uh, helped me teaching also the protection uh, the stuff that we do in the school. Uh, he brings uh, the his experience from the Green Beret that... Uh, it's it's very interesting because uh, it's a platform. Our course is basically a platform to not just to get to know my experience and my abilities, okay, is in uh, fighting skills, but also t- to see the American way and compare and to try to to find the the good things in every every strategy or every doctrine. Uh, so this in in. Uh, we have also instructed to from the uh, U.S. Secret Service, uh, Stephen, uh, that brings also Isangel uh, as a special agent for uh, basically the 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 prime protection, right? U.S. Secret Service dealing uh, with protection for the president and the vice president. So he brings his side of things. Uh, what I'm trying to say, basically, it's just that the name and the and the list of instructors is basically to show that we are not biased. We want to come, and I think it's interesting for students they can come and see a fairly, have a, a nice overview and perspective over uh, the different tactics that we that we do and why we do it differently and where are the similarities and, and overall, get like a best of breed, a deep dive to, to, the, to what we do mostly in the school, which is exposure protection, VIP protection, bodyguard stuff.
1: Awesome. So if anybody listening wants to sort of keep up with you guys or, or check out your school, um, where can they go to do that?
2: So we, have, uh, we are spread around the, the world. We have different locations that we use. We don't own it, but we uh, basically provide the courses uh, in different training centers globally. Uh, Florida, Maryland, Virginia, California. Uh, Soon we consider to do it in Texas. And going to South, we are doing courses in Mexico City, Ecuador. And on the east, in Thailand, uh, and in Europe, in Poland, Poland is a, is a very important training center because of uh, fairly you can get access to great facilities. Uh, so this is where we serve the European market. Um, yeah, and you know more more than uh, more than words. I invite people to come to our website. We have a YouTube channel that we shows everything. We don't hide we don't hide the you're not gonna see you're gonna see a lot of raw material. You're gonna see how people putting things putting the action literally, not trying to hide behind the very uh, sexy editing, you know. Right. Uh, you can see the whole thing. And if you like it, we are here. Uh, it's it's possible to attend the courses if you are uh, a normal uh, not criminal guy yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> what um what is the youtube channel and what is the website
2: it's very easy israeli tactical school uh, you're gonna you're gonna find it on google the uh, very easy and uh, and, uh, and i did not uh, i gave uh, again the idea is to uh, not to hide okay we show everything and you can see videos and call us and text us on WhatsApp and I'm very, very responsive. Uh, if it's something that you want to explore, it's a, it's a very good uh, chance to, to learn. Uh, you know, I'm not trying to be everything. Our focus is on combat skills, okay? Hardcore, life fire, teamwork, head to head combat, how to combine it all to the exact protection. Uh, if you if you look for something that is more uh, deep for combat, probably a good uh, good destination. Our, our school, uh, no PowerPoints, I promise, <laughs> no classroom PowerPoints, We guess <laughs> it. Yeah,
1: that's awesome. Um, so you know, I want to thank you for coming on here. Um, I know you're a busy guy, and uh, you know I appreciate you taking out time and your schedule to do this. Um, I know my audience is going to appreciate your perspective. Um, so again, thank you for coming on here, and I appreciate everything you do, brother.
2: Thank you very much for having me, and uh, stay safe, all of you guys over there.